Hello and welcome to the Blue Collar Yields podcast. I am your host, Tom Migliaccio. At Blue Collar Yields, we will talk about real estate, entrepreneurialism, and many other topics. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts. And while there, don't forget to rate this show and subscribe. Rachel Wonderland has a master's in gerontology and owns Dementia by Day, a dementia care consulting company. She is the author of the Johns Hopkins University Press book, When Someone You Know is Living in a Dementia Care Community. And she is working on her second and third titles for the press. Rachel works as a consultant for senior living companies who want to evaluate their dementia care. Rachel has been featured on NPR, The Washington Post, Hawaii Public Radio, and many more media outlets. Rachel, thanks for being here today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Let's start at the beginning. Can you tell us what gerontology is and what interested you in pursuing a degree in it? Gerontology is the study of aging. You hear sometimes about geriatricians. They are medical doctors that specialize in aging. I have kind of like the social work side of it. So it's not social work, but if I had a social work degree, it would be like specific to (laughs) to geriatrics. At what point did you realize you wanted to devote your career to dementia? I honestly don't know. It was probably sometime in graduate school. In high school, even, I knew I wanted to work in gerontology. So I always knew I wanted to work with older adults, but it wasn't until probably college when I was learning about dementia where I was like, oh, or graduate school where I was like, oh, yeah, this is definitely what I want to do. Could you tell us more about Dementia by Day and the services your company provides? So Dementia by Day is my dementia care consulting business. I work with senior living companies to elevate their dementia care programs, whatever that means to them. That could be staff training, branding, marketing, finding like a voice for their activity program. Really anything related to what senior living companies need help with, with dementia care specifically. It sounds like you've interacted with a lot of dementia care communities. What kind of due diligence should family members be completing when evaluating potential dementia care communities? And are there any must-ask questions? I actually have a list somewhere on my blog. It's like 22 questions you need to ask yourself when looking at a care community. It's very much a gut feeling is usually what I tell people when you're looking for a care community is if you walk in and you have a bad feeling in the pit of your stomach, then that's probably a no. But if you walk in and you have a generally good vibe, I think it's good to start investigating that community. And where can people find your blog so they can read that article for themselves? The blog is at DementiaByDay.com. You can really Google my name, Rachel Wonderland, and find it also. And that's all on my website. So my blog is on there. Stuff that I do, like what I do for a living is on there. And my book and and all that good stuff. Are there any red flags that would jump out at you during a tour of a facility or in conversation with the management? Yeah, definitely. So I think the thing to look for is like, how does the staff and how does management interact with the people who live at the community? Are they kind of dismissive of them on a tour or do they know everybody's name and greet them 
and talk to them like real people and not just residents who happen to live at that building. Long-term care facilities are expensive. What kind of financing options are available for regular, everyday people? Not a lot, to be honest with you. It depends on the state, but I always recommend people before they do anything crazy. A lot of people will spend down to flip to Medicaid, but a lot of communities don't accept Medicaid. So before doing anything like remortgaging your house, I recommend people find a financial advisor, like an elder law attorney or someone else who specializes in financial things related to aging before doing anything crazy. So you said spend down. Can you break that down for our listeners that might not know what you mean? Spend down would be if you have too much money and too many assets to be on Medicaid. So most people moving to senior living are already on Medicare because they're 65 or older for the majority of these people. But Medicaid is for people who have financial challenges. And you're kind of stuck if you're in like the middle class, because if you're wealthy, you can private pay no problem. And if you're really, really poor, the government can help you pay at least for like a skilled nursing arrangement. But if you're somewhere in the middle, which a lot of people are, they kind of really need to look at their options. So some people will spend down their cash and assets to be able to flip to Medicaid. That does not include giving gifts. So for example, you have like 100K stored away. You're like, oh, we got to get rid of this 100K so we can flip to Medicaid. You can't just gift your daughter $100,000 and be like, done, I did it. Because they have a seven-year look-back period, oh. the government does. So they could be like, well, you just like gave this money away last year. What would you tell someone that's on the fence about a long-term care facilities for their loved one? It's either because they think they can handle it themselves, or they might feel guilty just admitting their loved ones into a facility. So really, like the language, too, is tough. Even the phrase, like, committing to a facility, it sounds I, like really bad, yeah, right? it sounds like a, an institution. <laughs> so, right, and there's kind of this idea of what these places used to look like, like Happy Gilmore or One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest right. kind of stuff. And so there's this terrible fear. And are there not great places? A hundred percent. But some of these communities, you walk in, you're like, is this assisted living or is this just a mansion where a lot of people live and servants come? Some of these places are super nice. So there's a lot of guilt and families get really anxious about transitioning someone to a care community because they're like, well, I should be able to take care of mom by myself. Taking care of somebody who's aging is not the same thing as like raising a healthy child because children who are healthy, get better and they can do chores and they can do tasks. But taking care of somebody who's really old, they're going to keep getting worse. So it's not like the burden gets smaller. So you kind of mentioned this with the Happy Gilmore and the One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. How has dementia mm -hmm. care changed throughout the years? It's still definitely evolving, especially in the United States. Other countries are really far ahead in terms of dementia care. Is way far ahead of us when it comes to aging care. They kind of always have been. But in the United States, we definitely are talking about dementia a lot more than we were 10 years ago. When I went to look for a program to get a gerontology degree, this was 2010, 2011, when I was looking for a master's program, there really were only like three 
or four that really were viable options. Now there's a bunch and there's actually now undergraduate degrees in gerontology. So aging in general has become much more of a popular topic. And that's a really good thing. We're talking about it. Do you think it has become more popular because people are trying to beat the aging process? Well, this country has a big obsession with like looking and feeling and staying young, Mm -hmm. which is not really benefiting us. But I think people are living a lot longer. So, and there's this huge baby boomer population where everyone's like, oh, you know, like what the hell are we going to do with all these people? So there's a huge necessity where, you know, we probably should have been talking about this like 20 years ago, but it was kind of, (laughs) it's not a super exciting popular topic. So people are just like, eh, like it's not a really sexy topic. So I think it just kind of (laughs) gets like left. So what are some signs or patterns we should be looking for if our loved ones' behaviors start to shift? Keep an eye out for what I call like the one big thing. There's usually one weird thing that happens when a loved one might be coping with some early stages of dementia. I can summarize this by saying, you go home for the holidays, you see mom, and mom's bills are like all over the table where mom used to be awesome at paying her bills. And now there's like a stack of them. And you're like, well, that was weird. Or somebody reaches for a TV remote and tries to use it as a telephone. And you go, oh, well, that was weird. There's smaller signs, but there's usually like a couple big ones that make you kind of go, oh, we should probably look into this. What is one misconception about dementia you would like to clear up or dismiss? Everybody thinks everything is Alzheimer's. So I hear the phrase Alzheimer's and dementia a lot. Alzheimer's is just the number one cause of dementia. It's kind of pretty ubiquitous. So it's like a skin cancer of cancers. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. there's all these different types of cancer. There's all these different types of dementia. So I think when somebody gets a diagnosis of dementia, they immediately go, oh, my mom has Alzheimer's. Not necessarily. We could have another cause of dementia, and it might be important to look into that and find out actually what the cause of dementia is. So there's actually different types of treatments for different diseases, and can I say spectrum? Is that okay? Dementia is actually just a list of symptoms. Memory loss, trouble making decisions, trouble sleeping, toileting, eating, bathing, everything your brain does. (laughs) It's really a decline in cognitive functioning over time. So Alzheimer's disease is the number one cause of dementia. dementia. It's the number one cause of all okay. those symptoms. So we don't really have any really great treatments. People with certain dementias are more likely to see and hear people and things that are not there. And you may want to be aware if a loved one is seeing and hearing people that aren't there, that it's a normal progression of their disease process and not a sign that like something else is wrong. You recently did a podcast on this, but can you tell us how Hollywood has painted the wrong picture of dementia and the challenges that these portrayals bring to your industry? Hollywood makes things hard sometimes with depictions of healthcare in general. In general. They really like to take liberties with things. So in particular, movies like The Notebook really made people think that dementia looks a certain way so it's like oh you're gonna go in one day and dad's gonna have no idea who you are and that's just gonna be like what happens and that's not really an accurate picture of what happens in dementia but 
we get kind of hit with these stereotypes. And then sometimes dementia is used in like soap operas as a plot device. Like, oh, well, he forgot who the murderer was. And it's like, okay, uh, <laughs> this is like a group of diseases. This isn't like nice little plot device to right. toss in there, you know, because you're a shitty writer and you can't like come up with a different way to tackle a subject. We mentioned misconceptions earlier, but what is something you wish you could teach family members to handle the situation as best as possible? I think the number one thing would be don't argue with your person. Find ways to, as I like to say, embrace someone's reality. So to live in their world as best as you can. Because arguing with somebody with dementia is going to not be fun for anybody involved. And it's going to immediately set you up for failure. It's going to immediately send you down a really negative path. So I think that would probably be the number one thing. Is find a way to garner your patience and communicate positively. So when you say don't argue, do you mean don't mm -hmm. correct them? Let's say a person's wife had passed away and the gentleman was diagnosed. And he said, oh, mom came to visit me yesterday. Yeah. You're not going to say, no, she didn't. She's dead. And you're just going to be like, oh, great, cool. Like I tell this story all the time. I had a lady I used to take care of in New Jersey and she, President Obama used to come to her house all the time, you know, oh, <laughs> and yeah. obviously that didn't really happen, but it did in her reality. So we would just like talk about that. We had some great discussions uh, about it. Yeah. And it's just like, yeah, it's way easier to live in somebody's world than to go like, nope, yeah, you're wrong. Right. So even though you're in a different field, you help serve as an inspiration for our blog as well as podcast. You're awesome and you really excel at content marketing. When did you start your blog and what was your initial goal? I started my blog when I was working at my first senior living community. So I was working at a community in North Carolina after I graduated with my master's. And I was in charge of all of the daily resident engagement and programming, which was a really big job. But I loved it. I loved it. I had like 30, 35 residents. And probably week two, I realized I had so many great stories just talking to my people. And I was like, I need to write this stuff down. So I started Tumblr, like Tumblr blog. And I started writing short stories and they were all true. I just changed names and a couple details to keep people safe. And the blog started with like five followers. I remember getting. 50 people and being like, that's great. I've made it. Yeah. Like <laughs> I'm doing it. And eventually, well, people were pretty quickly being like, you need to put this into a, into a book. And I was like, I don't know about that. So that's how the book and everything evolved from that blog. Right. But that was probably like early 2014, I would say when I started that blog. So you're writing the blog. And then when did you realize that I could own my own business and do this full time? When did that sort of click? So the blog turned into the book. So I lived in North Carolina, worked at the community for a year. I loved it. And then I moved up to Pittsburgh with an ex <laughs> and got a job up here. Hated the community I worked at. I was a dementia care director. I was in charge of the whole floor, but I just hated the management. <laughs> so right. I worked there for like, I want to say like eight months. And then I got another job also in Pittsburgh. So I moved right from one to the other, worked in that third community. First, I loved it. And then my boss and I just started coming into conflict. And 
I've just always been an entrepreneur. I've always been creating things. I've always been selling stuff, making stuff. And I've always kind of had this problem where I'll be at a job and then I get really bored. I've done everything. Like I work and I figure out everything and I did everything. And then it's just day-to-day nonsense. And I get, I get bored. My book was coming out in November and coming into a lot of conflict with the boss. She called me up in late August of 2016. And I was like, I know what this is. Like, I was like, I might as well pack up right, right, <laughs> right now. Yeah. So she calls me up to her office and I'm like, no, oh, man. And she lays me off. And I fight back a little bit, but I get laid off. And I go home and I open up my laptop and I go on Monster or Indeed or one of those job sites. Right. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Let's find it. And after about 10 minutes, I was like, no, I'm not going to do this again. I don't have it in me. I can't do it. I'm so burned out working for other people. And my book was coming out with Johns Hopkins University Press in November. So this is August 24th. And probably the time I was giving up on this was probably like somewhere around that week, late August. So I was like, okay, time to put up or shut up. I was like, okay, let's go. Like I'd already done some public speaking for dementia and I'd already done one minor kind of consulting gig where I went to Texas. This place found me on LinkedIn. So in 2015, while I was still working at my last nine to five, this place brought me out to Texas for three days and I trained their staff and I had a good time and I did all that stuff. And I was like, well, what if I just finally do what I've always wanted to do? I've had this idea since I was 22. It just didn't seem like it ever made sense. So once I got laid off, I was like, well, this is the time. So I got laid off, decided to really start working on my LinkedIn, buffed up my LinkedIn, really put a lot of content into that, started building my rachelwonderland.com website. So I already had dementia by day, but started building my own portfolio and getting an email list and doing all that crazy stuff and found a caregiving job to help support myself on care.com. So started spending two days a week taking care of this lady with vascular dementia at her house. It's a really good gig. I was with her for probably eight months or so. And she passed away while I was there. I was the Uh, final caregiver with her and I'm still friends with her son, which is great. And probably like a week or two before she died, I got a message on LinkedIn from a manor care building. Manor care is a big company. And they have a building here in Pittsburgh and their HR director was like, Hey, we're looking for a dementia consultant. I saw your profile on LinkedIn and you're nearby. Would you come and meet with our administrator? And I was like, yeah. So soon after I ended up getting like my first consulting gig under my business name started there and doing all this stuff. And I was like, okay, now I'm on my way. Now I'm doing the thing that I've been <laughs> I've right. actually been wanting to do. So you're at the blog and then it seems like a, a pretty big leap from the blog to the book. What was the most successful marketing strategy for getting your name out there? Having Johns Hopkins be my publisher yeah. was clutch. Before you self-publish anything, I recommend seeing if someone will publish it. I wrote a few chapters and I sent my information to a few different presses, like nonfiction presses. So Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Hopkins, and anyone who would publish books on dementia. 
I got a letter from Princeton. I got a letter from Harvard. And they were like, we don't have it. We're not doing any dementia titles, but this sounds like a great book. Good luck with it. And it was like, oh, that was nice. And I was kind of like, well, it's not a big deal. And then I got a letter from Hopkins and they were like, we are very interested. Can you send us three chapters? And I was like, oh, <laughs> I got to write three chapters. So I wrote three chapters like real quick and had a friend read through it and just like proofread it for me. And I was like, all right, sent that off. And over the course of a year, they decided to publish my book. So went back and forth and it's so long from talking about the book to having the book come out. It's like a two and a half year process. Were you ever yeah. afraid to talk about the book just because the process was taking so long? Were you ever like, oh my God, is this thing ever going to come out? Were there ever any insecurities? Oh recently? yeah. I mean, people were like, how's the book coming? And I was like, I didn't want to jinx it. I don't want to talk about this book because technically they still could pull it. They could be like, oh, we got your manuscript. It sucks. Like I hired a freelance editor mm -hmm. and I paid her out of pocket to edit my chapters as I was writing them so that by the time Hopkins got them, it looked really good. And I did not do that for my second or my third book because Hopkins trusts me now. But especially then I was like, all right, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure like this thing looks good. So when you wrote the book, you wrote it gradually? When I first started it, I was like, oh, like I can just chip away at this over right. time. And then Hopkins sent me, they wanted it done by like November of 2015. And I was like, uh-oh, they wanted 60,000 words. And I was like, oh, well, I'm probably halfway done. And I just like went on pages and pulled up the word count. And it's like, I have 20,000 words. And I was like, uh-oh. So I was like, okay, I got to sit down and add more chapters and figure out how to do this. So at one point, probably for about nine months there, I was churning out close to three chapters a month, Whoa. which is a lot. And this is not even counting the fact that I was like also editing stuff my editor was sending back to me. And at that point too, I had a nine to five. So I was still working for most of that time. I was working in North Carolina, the place where I started my blog. and then. I was still working on the book when I got to Pittsburgh, but kind of like finishing touches. Where did you find your editor, if you don't mind me asking? My editor was actually came recommended on a list from Johns Hopkins. So okay. they were like, hey, if you want your manuscript to look really good when we get it, here's a list of freelance editors that we've worked with before. You might want to contact them. So I reached out to a couple of them and somebody got back pretty quick and was like, my mom had dementia. I'd be really interested to help you with this title. So I was like, cool. Where can people get the book? People can get the book in Barnes & Noble. People can get the book on Amazon, which is probably the most popular place to get anything. Mm -hmm. People can get the book from me on my website. I think when you have a book, people will think that you have like a printing press in your basement. People will just be like, hey, Rachel, can you send me eight copies of your book? And I'm like, no, I can't send you no, eight copies not. of the book. Yeah. I have to buy my book from Hopkins. I get a 40% discount. <laughs> but I have to buy it <laughs> at any given time. The most copies I ever have in my possession is maybe 20. And they pretty much live in my trunk of my car. And then I cart them around to events or someone will buy it and I'll pop it in the mail, you know, <laughs> right. stuff like that. So it sounds yeah. like the book was just a huge game changer for you. Having a master's degree and having the book, I definitely would not be able to do what I'm doing without those things because what I'm doing is very innovative for this industry. So having the book and having 
the masters, but then also having like, worked in three different care communities and having that kind of, look, I've been here, I've worked, I've seen it, I've lived it. I know what you guys need. I know what you're going through. I would assume traditionally that most people work for research organizations or hospitals. Why did you want to pursue this on your own? This job honestly doesn't exist in an organization. What I do doesn't really exist because I'm able to work with multiple organizations at once. The closest that I could come to this job in a nine to five kind of way would be if I was like a regional manager for a major senior living organizations. And interestingly, I've gotten a number of interview requests and recruiters will contact me a couple times a year at this point to say, oh, Rachel, I think you'd be a good candidate for this employer. It's a big senior living company. They need like a regional dementia care advisor or director or whatever they want to call it, like innovation manager. And in the beginning, it was tempting to be like, ooh, a regular paycheck. I would know what was happening every month. Okay. But now I just got a call recently and I was like, hey, um, no, I don't want a nine to five job. I work for myself. It's going really well. So what I will offer is if your client is interested in a consultant rather than a full-time employee, I'd be happy to have that conversation. And they didn't want to have the conversation. They were like, nope. So on rachelwonderland.com, you mentioned fitting people's budgets and how they won't pay exorbitant prices. So how important is it for you to offer different products based on people's need and not a one-size-fit-all? I have a one-month, a three-month, and a six-month program where people can consult with me. There aren't too many people who do kind of what I do. I'm very specific in what I do, but the people who would be quote-unquote competitors to me are people who have probably been doing this longer than I've been alive working in healthcare. So the biggest known name in this country in dementia care is somebody named Tipa Snow. And Tipa Snow lives in North Carolina. I've heard her speak. She has a very specific way of doing dementia care. She's been in this industry for a very, very long time. She and other people who offer dementia care consulting usually have their own programs. You would buy and license the Tipa Snow dementia care program for your community. So if you were like, oh, we want to be Tipa Snow certified, you would buy her program and it would just be like, okay, here's all the materials you need to get started. I come in and work with the company. So I'm a lot more flexible. I really don't want a cookie cutter thing. I really want to work with communities who want their own program, but they need help to do it. So the places I'm working with now, either they had a program and they didn't really roll it out and so it's not very good or they never had a program to begin with and they're like oh we need our own dementia care program so has there been a time where feedback from client has shifted the product you deliver let's say you did that and someone was like hey rachel we really appreciate it but we wish you did a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that will you carry that with you to the next consulting job it depends i guess what the feedback is So I've learned a lot over the past year about what exactly I'm delivering, but it's really interesting because you could kind of give two different clients similar things. I have a program where the intro to working with me is 1500 bucks and it's 
an assessment with solutions. So like I'll assess a company, I'll assess their program and then give them proposed solutions about what I think they could do. And if they want to hire me, I'll do that stuff for them. I've done seven of these, which wow, is pretty cool. That's awesome. And a lot of help from the online classes I've paid for and <laughs> taken <laughs> about like how to package my services. But did this and six of the companies were really happy with it. Three of them have already brought me on for longer term employment. One of them I'm working on now and hoping to sign with this week. The other two that were happy were just like, hey, we're in the middle of a lot of crazy stuff right now. We're going to come back to this later. Like, these are great solutions. We're probably going to try and do it ourselves and maybe we'll call you later. Okay, cool. And then the seventh one was like, well, this is not revolutionary enough. And I said, well, I'm sorry if you got the impression that this was supposed to be like a revolutionary thing. I can't build a dementia care program for you with $1,500 after a two hour conversation with you on the phone. (laughs) And he was like, oh, it seemed like he was like a really nice guy. And then like upon the delivery was kind of a jerk. I'm like, I don't know what the hell you expected. I talked to your company for two hours and you want me to like build you an entire program for 1500 bucks. Yeah, I don't know. So that's the kind of situation where you go like, eh, that guy just didn't get it. Sometimes you got to cut your losses and you just got to go, well, uh, I'm not really going to try following up with them. I don't know that I really want to do further business with that client. If they give you good feedback and it's a client who likes your work, but they actually have something useful to say, that's something to carry on. But if it's just something kind of dumb, like, well, this wasn't what I thought it was going to be. It's like, well, I'm not really sure where the, okay. the clear is yeah. like a miscommunication. Right. Yeah. So anyone that follows Rachel knows that she shoots videos in her car. So Rachel, was this a way for you to utilize time that otherwise would be unproductive? The car thing is mostly because <laughs> the lighting is great. I have lights where I can do videos in my uh, apartment in front of my computer if I need to, like if it needs to be really more of a professional thing. But shooting the video in my car is so easy because it takes like five minutes. I just pop my phone onto the dash and then I can just throw this video out there. I don't really have to edit it too hard and I can just like put it on YouTube. Great way for me to get my message out there quickly. And I think people kind of appreciate that it's kind of informal. And I've had people be like, oh, my God, I used your videos to train my staff. And I had somebody say that to me recently, and I thought that was so funny. Or people will be like, oh, you did the car videos. And it's like, yeah. So it's kind of a funny thing I just started doing out of sheer convenience. But people think it's kind of entertaining. So are there any other, let's say, less than conventional ways that you try to utilize your time that other people might not have thought about? So I started the podcast because people were like, you should make a podcast. I'm like, oh man, all right. I was posting on my Instagram, my Facebook, scheduling my emails that go out Mondays and Wednesdays. And I recently hired a virtual assistant who I do know in real life. She actually lives near me. And she is in charge of my social media now because I was spending an insane amount of time managing my social media. And I was like, I really need to cut back because there are other things I could be spending time doing instead of just like scheduling these social posts. I used to offer one-to-one help calls for 
people who had family members with dementia. So people would set up a phone call with me for an hour or a half an hour to talk and they'd pay me online and we'd talk. And two months ago, I realized I was like, this is super exhausting. This is taking a lot of time because I'd have maybe four calls a month, which isn't crazy, but it was a lot of energy and I could be better spending it working on my actual business. So I changed it to be what I call the care partner club. So now I do a once a month pre-scheduled call and anybody who wants to be on the call pays $10 and they can hop on the call and submit their questions. And the last one I did, three women on the call, each of them, their husband had a dementia diagnosis. And by the end of the call, like I didn't even have to talk anymore. They were just talking to each other. Like they were all on the Zoom video chat with me Mm -hmm. and they were just like, asking each other questions and it was awesome because i was like this is a community it's like a virtual support group and i was like this is way better than me doing a one-to-one cause like i can help more people at once for less cost and less time investment on my part if i do this instead i mean we even got into a topic about sexuality and that was something that the three of them were all dealing with with their spouses in different ways so that's like a really cliche topic that none of them felt comfortable talking about otherwise, but because they all were dealing with the same thing, they were able to talk about it and be comfortable with an uncomfortable topic. So back to rachelwonderland.com, we see you're firing on all cylinders as an entrepreneur. <laughs> you have a book, the courses, and the pamphlets that are available for purchase. We've always admired people who are able to generate passive income Have you found that these products help leverage your time as a recurring source of revenue? Yeah, the products especially are brand new. Like I really just kind of finally finished that stuff up last month. Putting that stuff packaged on my website has been really cool because I always wanted to do that, but wasn't sure how. So I took a class online about packaging products and turning your services into a product pretty soon after I put up the product, especially like just that $99 kit had a couple people reach out and they were like, Hey, we're a nonprofit. We can't afford yada, yada, but this looks perfect. And they were able to get a lot of good information from me for a really low price. And that otherwise we never would have had that conversation if I didn't have that stuff on my site. I was poking around. I really like those one sheeters. They're great. What are they? Five, 10 or $15. Yeah, they're just like posters. And I used to sell like a 16 things I'd want if I got dementia poem sort of thing that I wrote back in 2014. And it circulated the internet. I had somebody turn it into a poster for me and I was selling the poster. And then I was like, what if I just put the PDF on my site? And so people can like buy and download the poster. I think it's like five bucks or seven bucks or something then they can print it out or they can do whatever they want with it, but then they can just like have a file. So improv comedy is something we looked at doing, but once again, you beat us to it. How has (laughs) improv comedy helped your career? I've been doing improv since college. Improv has been huge for me, even just like a social factor, being able to meet people. But my friend Chris and I have an improv comedy and dementia care workshop. So we teach caregivers and the lady who works in senior living to communicate better with people living with dementia through improv 
techniques. So like improvisational theater teaches us to agree with our scene partner and add information and accept information that's been gifted to us. And some of these basic things that we teach in level one improv are very applicable in dementia care. So through my own training in dementia care, it's been really influential. And I have a whole chapter on it in my second book, which is due out in June. I didn't really feel comfortable writing about it for my first book because I didn't know how to explain it. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to explain the intersection well enough, but now I have a really good handle on it. So I was able to explain this in a way that people were like, oh, wow, I get it. All right. So now I got a personal question. What was your first job Uh and what lessons did you carry forward throughout your career? I've had a lot of jobs. (laughs) My first job besides babysitting, was probably working at the Tavistock Swim Club. And I was 13 and working at the front desk. And it was like definitely not legal for me to be doing that. But my dad was on the board and I've always loved working. Like I just desperately wanted to work. And so my dad was like, okay. So I'm working at the front desk and having people be like, how old are you? I'm like, don't worry about it. You know, Just sign in (laughs) and go. (laughs) Yeah, don't worry about it all that other little things I did when I was 13, eBay became a thing around then. I started buying posters at AC Moore, the craft store, and then reselling them for a profit on eBay. I was 13 and I would just like use my mom's username because you had to be an adult. So I'm just like this 13 year old talking to people and shipping out posters. (laughs) So I just had a really good handle. I just always had a really good work ethic and I always loved making money and figuring out creative ways to make money. So what advice do you have for female entrepreneurs who are preparing to go out on their own? I would say you need three things. One, you need a niche or a niche or however you want to say it and not just be like, oh, I like I like stuff. I'm a good independent worker. It's like, who cares? So you need a niche. Two, you need expertise in that niche. So just being like, I like baking. And it's like, do you have any experience baking? No, I don't. I mean, I like baking. It's fun. Well, that's a hobby. That's not a job. So a lot of people who get an idea like, oh, I'm going to turn my hobby into a job. I mean, it's possible. Technically, I did do it, but I have a lot of expertise in this niche. The third thing I would say is to start. You can spend all your time writing a business plan and creating this and planning this. But the big thing for me was just going like, all right, I'm going to do this. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to figure it it out. And I went on and started making my portfolio site. And through making the website, I really kind of found myself and found what I was going to do. Because putting it onto paper was like, Oh, that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my niche. Just every year, narrowing it down, narrowing it down, making it smaller, making it smaller, get more specific. Doing one thing instead of a hundred things. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. How can our listeners get in touch with you and find your book? They can find me online. A quick Google of Rachel Wonderland, dementiabyday.com. I recommend signing up for my mailing list. You get emails Monday and Wednesday and then some other interesting little tidbits and goodies. Book is in Barnes and Noble. I've got my business page on Instagram. I got it on Facebook. All right. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks again. I'll talk to you soon. Cool.
Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If there are more topics you would like to hear about, you can email us at info at bluecollaryields.com. For more episodes, you can search Blue Collar Yields on Apple Podcasts.